What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. The Black Power Movement has a long and rich history in this country and around the globe, which was fueled by largely unseen or lesser-known activists and organizers on the ground. A new book, Stayed on Freedom by Dan Berger, aims to change that just a little by telling the story of the Black Power Movement through the life stories of two unheralded grassroots activists, Zahara Simmons and Michael Simmons. We are joined by both Zahara and Michael, as well as author Dan Berger, to discuss good morning to you all. Good morning. Good morning. Morning. Thanks for having us. Yes. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Zahara, I'm going to start with you. Uh, where do you hail from and what was growing up like for you in Memphis? I Well, I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee and, uh, you know, born in 44. And so we're talking the height of the Jim Crow era. And so I grew up in a racially segregated city. Uh, where Black people lived in their neighborhoods and, uh, you know, it Black people could vote, but certainly could not run for office. Uh, you know, there were no Black policemen and women. There were no uh, firefighters. I mean, uh, most of the Black people, unless they were uh, teachers or principals, we certainly had our own doctors and attorneys, uh, but clearly uh, most Black people worked in very low-income jobs. Nonetheless, it was a really wonderful uh, upbringing, uh, lots of love, uh, wonderful school, same one that I attended from first through 12th grades. I knew all the teachers. They all knew me. Uh, the church um, was a big part of my growing up, uh, loved everybody there, felt loved by them, and the same in my community. So while, uh, you know, danger lurked all around us within our cocoons, uh, we had wonderful lives. But I was taught from early on uh, to watch my step be very careful when I was around white people uh, that they were dangerous and that they would kill me if I got out of line in their view. Answered several of the questions I was going to segue into, um, except for this one. When you were 16, you sat in the front seat of a segregated bus in Memphis. Can you tell that story and how that experience shaped you moving forward? Yes, when I was 16, I had been told ever since I could remember that I was going to college and, uh, you know, do well in high school uh, and be prepared for college. Now, we were poor and I knew that I needed at the end of my junior year to have a job. I'd never had a job. I needed to earn money to be able to buy some clothes, put some money aside to help out. Uh, did not know at that time I'd have a full scholarship, et cetera. So I started looking in the newspaper, the commercial appeal paper for jobs. 
and I saw a number of them that I felt that I was qualified for, you know, clerks, uh, people who could type. I had taken a commercial course in addition to an academic course. So, you know, I knew how to type, I knew how to file, et cetera. So I cut out all these uh, uh, one-eds and off I went into a part of town that I don't think I'd ever been in before. Mm. And uh, I went to the first place and, you know, they looked at me as if I had horns and they said, oh, that job's not for you. Uh, you know, get on out of here. Uh, went to the next place. <laughs> they had the same kind of reception. It was like, what? No. <laughs> and then the third place. And so when I came out from the third absolute rejection without even wanting to know my name, much less whether I was qualified for any of the jobs. Uh, it started raining. And, you know, in Memphis in June, we have those torrential storms. And I, for some reason, didn't have a raincoat, didn't have an umbrella. So I was soaked uh, through and through. And I was mad already, but I really got mad. So then I said, you know, it's hopeless. And I went and got on the 31 Crosstown bus that would take me back into the Black community. And when I got on the bus, I sat down on the front seat, something I had never done before in my life. I don't even think I'd ever thought of doing it. And when I sat down across from the driver, a white man, of course, he said, girl, what's wrong with you? Get on up from there and get on in the back where you belong. And I just glared at him. I mean, I was so mad. Now, there were no white people on the bus other than the driver. And there were a number of black people in the back. Well, people, the black people were like, oh, God, no, please come on back. We don't want no trouble, please. And I ignored them. So when the white people started getting on, they were like, what is she doing here? They told the driver, make her get up and move to the back because no white person could sit behind a black person. Mm -hmm. So that's how stupid it was. So, you know, there was a line down the middle of the bus that you were supposed to be on the other side of. And so all these white people dripping wet, mad, standing over me saying, get up. And for some reason, they didn't make me get up. They told the driver to call the police. He didn't. And so they got off because, you know, before we got to the black neighborhood, it was all blacks on the bus again. And by the time I got home and told my grandmother what I had done, she practically died. She said, I ought to beat you. You're crazy. They could have killed you, arrested you. There's nothing we could have done. So they, she was like, you're not going back in the white community trying to get a job. I'm going to help you find a job. So, of course, she got a, a friend <laughs> to give me a job at the Harlem House, which were black uh, little uh, uh, restaurants, you know, hamburger joints. And that's where I worked for the rest of the summer. Mm. 
And really, you know, my grandmother scared me more so than, than the white people because, you know, I'd had a number of uh, good beatings from her all my growing up. So I knew she was like, I need to beat you. You're out of your mind. So, you know, that was my first, uh, you know, defiance of Jim Crow laws. Uh, and it it really did affect me for the rest of my growing up. Thank you for sharing that story. I'm I'm sitting a little bit with um, that strategy in our community, right? That that has passed down from chattel slavery to today of beating our children as a means of saving their lives, right? Um, and the conversations that are happening right now about that not necessarily being needed anymore and interrupting some of these generational cycles of trauma. Um, Certainly a conversation my daughter has forced me to have in the raising of her. Um, Michael, same question for you. A little bit of a different trajectory. Talk about where you hail from, you know, moving and landing in, in Philadelphia and what growing up was like for you. Yes. Um, well, mine was was uh, not quite like Zahar's um, that um, except um, as part of the environment, I was really not particularly racially conscious, even though I um, went to school with white people, but lived in a, a basically segregated uh, community, not officially segregated, uh, but clearly segregated in retrospect. Um, and uh, both my, although both my parents were from the South, they really didn't, I mean, we, when they talked about the racism of the South, it was more in a context of look how dumb white people were. So that, like, I didn't really grow up with, with any kind of fear of white people or what they might do to me. Um, and I had white friends um, in school, even though we didn't, see each other after school, that um, uh, my racial consciousness really came into being when, um, like, like, well, let me step back. Like most young Northerners of my age, the parents had come from the South, my mother from South Carolina, father from Georgia, so that I would spend some summers in the South um, growing up with my cousins and in one case, my grandmother. And um, my cousins, who were about my age, a little older, would warn me about white people, but I just thought it was silly um, uh, based on my experiences. So I didn't really um, take them seriously at all. And uh, But the thing that really jolted my entire reality and really set me on the course that, I, that, I, that Dan narrates in the book was the assassination of Emmett Till. And that was the first time that I really grasped that this racial issue was something that impacted me because I saw myself in Emmett Till. I mean, that could have just as well been me in Georgia or South Carolina. And um, then uh, two years later, there was Little Rock, Arkansas. And that was another joke to my consciousness, me going to school with white people all my life and 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 they have to send in federal troops to get nine uh, children in the school. And so those two events, even though I didn't have a language 
But what I was going to do, I didn't know where it would take me. I knew that my life would be focused on trying to address uh, those issues that those events obviously raised. And Michael, can you talk just a little bit about how and when you discovered Marxism and, and communism and how that shaped your younger self? Yeah. Um, well, in terms of actually being exposed to it, it it was it wasn't until my teenage years that I, I've often told people that in, in terms of my experiences, while African Americans were not uh, communists, they were clearly not as hostile to the issue of communism um, as um, as the larger society. Primarily, I would argue, because communists had a reputation for struggling for racial equality. But in terms of my own experiences, that I began a quest, I guess, uh, in my uh, sophomore um, high school year, uh, trying to find out about African-American history. I was watching the Freedom Rides. I was uh, aware of the sit-in movement. And uh, so my my um, uh, uh, interest in learning more about African-Americans um, historically just was acute. And purely by happenstance, no plan, I wandered into a, a bookstore uh, when I was about 16 uh, that was owned by an African-American communist. He had started the bookstore as a result of McCarthyism and his comrades are literally throwing out their books and he collected them and and somehow or another um, started his bookstore. And um, I, I just wandered in there one day because it was very difficult in those days to find out about African-American history. And um, it was like a love at first sight. This guy's name, this man's name was Bill Crawford. Um, he was excited to see me as I began excited to see him because he could tell that I was just a blank slate. And uh, he began telling me about Paul Robeson, about the attack on Robeson in Peekskill, New York, telling me about W.B. Du Bois, uh, Marcus Garvey, um, and uh, the uh, his, history of at least the 20th century history of African-Americans, and in particular, the Communist Party. And he would uh, give me books. He gave me a book by Harry Haywood on the Negro national question. He gave me a three volumes of uh, linen. And um, so I really began to uh, try to read and understand it, um, which was very difficult for me, I might add, during those days. But nevertheless, I struggled through it enough to get a sense of it. And uh, so that I was very, it, it wasn't that I became a communist, but I was predisposed towards communism and began to see it as an alternative to, or at least a path to a social change. All right, Dan, I want to bring you in the conversation. And how did you end up having these amazing humans in your life? How did you meet uh, Zahara? And then how did you meet Michael? Yeah, you know, I think this is a book of, of serendipitous connections, uh, both in their lives, but also in mine. So I had the, um, the, the good luck and good fortune to start as a student at the University of Florida the same year that Zahara started there as a professor. Um, I started in the fall of 1999. I think she started you know, in January of 2000. 
Um, and so she was a, a guest speaker in a history class that I was taking, and I was just really blown away by her stories, a little bit of which she's shared already, but, uh, you know, there's a lot more. And, um, and you know, it was inspiring as a young activist to, to hear some of these movement stories. I had already been doing some work with political prisoners, and so I knew some sort of 1960s veterans, but Sahara, I think, was the first who was not incarcerated, who I uh, was able to sort of build a connection with. Um, but it also was not just inspiring in its own right, but it, it, it inspired me to go to the library and to learn more and, and to sort of read what I could about um, the civil rights movement and black power and some of the things I was learning from her. And I was just really struck by uh, the difference, by the gaps between some of what she was saying and, and some of what was there in, in, uh, in the written literature. When I graduated college at the end of 2003, I moved to Philadelphia and I met Michael not long thereafter. And I had known, you know, a little bit about him from Sahara. And, um, and, and again, it was just the same kind of experience of, of two people who have done so much, who continue to be involved in different ways, uh, and, and who really provided a different and a more three-dimensional and robust and compelling understanding of Black power than, than what passed for that conversation. Thank you for that. And then last sort of introductory questions, and you all can decide who tells the story, but Michael and Zahara, how do you all meet? Uh, well, um, and I'm so, <laughs> I'm so grateful to Dan. This is what happens when you have a researcher uh, looking into things uh, that they can remind you of something that you have forgotten. Uh, because uh, thanks to Dan, uh, he found uh, in the SNCC archives uh, a, uh, uh, what do you call it, the meeting minutes of a meeting that both Michael and I were attending. And, and Dan, I think, probably can tell this better than me. Uh, in which we, uh, SNCC was debating uh, to do a, a, a statement about the war in Vietnam. Now, I had totally forgotten that, you know, uh, and, and as Dan found the minutes and saw what I was saying, what Michael was saying, uh, because my memory, of course, is of meeting Michael uh, at that SNCC uh, staff meeting, uh, I had worked in Laurel, Mississippi for 18 months and um, was pulled out of the state because I think, it, rightly so, I really was on the verge of a breakdown after being there and had been sent to New York, uh, both for some R&R, &R, but also to do fundraising, and then later brought back uh, by the organization to Atlanta and to Alabama. And anyway, Mike and I uh, were both, and Mike can certainly talk about where he had worked, uh, but we met in Atlanta uh, and as both of us being what was were called field secretaries for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Thank you. 
You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We're in conversation with lifelong freedom fighters and organizers, Zahara Simmons and Michael Simmons, whose life work is lifted up in a new book by Dan Berger, who also joins us today. The book is called Stayed on Freedom. The book explores the history trajectory of the Black Power Movement, and I would actually like each of you uh, to define Black Power and how it, it has shaped your po- political ideology and praxis. Michael, this time I'd like to start with you. Um, well, um, I mean, Black Power has many meanings to different people. That, that to me, the fact that it 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 emerged in the context of the African American freedom struggle. Um, um, it gets the adjective black. I mean, uh, um, and but um, soon after black power became a national issue, you start seeing signs like Chicano power, started seeing signs like Asian power. So that I, I, I see the concept of, of black power as oppressed people determining um, their lives and not just their lives on a daily basis, but their lives in terms of struggle. That that if you look at the 20th century from the founding of the NAACP through uh, various other uh, civil rights org, um, organizations, the, the influence of white people was very uh, um, predominant, if you will, which is not to suggest that, 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 that the white people didn't bring some positive um, um, attributes to the struggle. But in the context of the racial reality of the US, it was almost instinctive that black people, when they were around white people, assumed that the white people were smarter, they could do more things, and that they were uh, uh, more intellectually capable than us. And I think that black power uh, uh, fundamentally challenged that view and created a, a new paradigm in the movement where African-Americans in particular, uh, marginalized people in general, could control the course of their movement. Thank you for that, Sahara. Oh, yeah, I I certainly agree with Michael. Uh, You know, having been in the integrationist wing of the movement, uh, both as a student at Spelman College when we were attempting to and did desegregate, you know, restaurants and and theaters and all of that. And then uh, getting involved in the struggle for the vote, for the right to vote, and importantly, to develop uh, the Democratic, Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, uh, and going to um, Atlantic City, in 1964 for the Democratic National Convention where we challenged the Mississippi regular all white racist Democrats uh, to become the representatives of the Democratic Party and to have the party leadership from uh, Johnson, uh, President Johnson on down uh, undermine us, uh, sell us out, basically. That was a rude awakening for me. Uh, so, you know, and then to go to New York and to, you know, hang out in Harlem, you know, and uh, talk to Black nationalists, members of the Nation of Islam, uh, to hang out uh, with uh, 
the poet, I'm blanking on his name right now, um, the black consciousness movement that was already in process. I mean, it really impacted me amazingly. And I was thinking of Leroy Jones, excuse me, and his uh, black arts theater there in New York that I started hanging out and trying out for roles and stuff. But I already knew that I had some serious questions about uh, the integrationist thrust in the sense that Black people needed to be integrated into white formations in order to be, you know, important or any of this stuff. So this whole notion of self-determination, of, of recognizing our own self-worth, uh, and that we had a rich uh, heritage to bring to the table uh, on our own, uh, based on, you know, struggles within the movement uh, with my white colleagues, uh, and dealing with my own internalized uh, racism uh, and doubt. Uh, this, uh, the Black power, as we talked with one another and developed the ideological uh, backdrop for promoting it within SNCC, it was a, a coming into realization uh, that, uh, you know, to put it mildly, I am somebody, I mean, you know, uh, and that we need power as a people uh, in order to be self-determining, self-defining, et cetera. But of course, I agree that this is what all oppressed people must uh, go through in order to, uh, you know, determine their lives and the trajectories of their lives. But of course, initially for me, it was uh, for me as a black person to do that and for me to organize with other black people to come into our own, if you will. Thank you for that. And I wanna, I wanna come back to uh, integration and how that played out for us in just a minute. But, but Dan, I'd, I'd like, I'd like you to talk about how you define Black power, but also as a historian writing about this issue, what is it you are trying to accomplish and how do you hope telling these stories, the stories of these two lifelong freedom fighters will inform current movements uh, for liberation or help, help shape um, folks' analysis uh, of the past in order to inform current organizing efforts? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I agree so much with what Michael Zahara said, so I, I won't spend a lot of time on the definition, but, um, you know, in the book, I talk about Black power as both a paradigm and a movement, right, that we could think about, uh, you know, the frameworks, the ideas, um, but also the organizations and, and the strategies and the goals. And so I think across both of them, an emphasis on self-determination, as Michael was saying, um, but also, you know, an emphasis on coalition, uh, you know, so, and this is where black power becomes, you know, a kind of umbrella category um, for, for other forms of, of you know, self-activity and self-organization by oppressed people. And this is part of what's so wrong about how the story of black power is too often told. 
um, which is that it, it is about white people, <laughs> you know, particularly with regard to black powers as it emerged within the student nonviolent coordinating committee. So much of that conversation is, is um, sort of shaped by this, this narrative that white people were, you know, kicked out of the organization or how did white people respond to, to black power. And so that's one thing, one thing that I wanted to do different, right, was to tell a story about uh, black power that was about its, its emergence within the movement from some people who helped, uh, helped give it voice but also to tell a story about what Black Power meant for Black people and for the movements that they were a part of and connected to. And, and one of the larger hopes that I have for the book is you know, sort of shifting our attention away from this idea of movement history as a history of, of the sort of great leaders uh, or movement history as a history of singular organizations and singular places. Because movements are about the duration, right? Movements are about the proliferation of organizations. They're about a range of tactics. Uh, and I think one thing that Sahara and Michael's lives show so beautifully is this sort of constant sense of, of experimentation that I think is at the heart of movement work. And so, you know, we've talked a lot about SNCC, but they were, they've been a part of a myriad of organizations over the last 60 years, um, you know, sometimes at the same time, right? <laughs> being being a part of multiple organizations. And so I really think sort of understanding it at, at that human level and understanding how people, you know, come to consciousness, how people sort of keep, keep struggling um, and recognizing that that takes place across a wide set of geographies that takes place uh, within and across a wide set of organizations. That's what makes it a kind of movement history and one that I hope is useful to movements today. Thank you for uh, that. Oh, go go ahead, Michael, please, yes. Yeah, you know, because something occurred to me that that frankly I hadn't, hadn't really got thought about. Uh, but if you look at the early um, uh, pictures of uh, demonstrations in the early 60s, late 50s, both in Montgomery, clearly, but but the students in, uh, in, in SNCC, that uh, what you see is that people were dressed, their ties, their jackets. Um, they, were, they were looking, quote, um, respectable in, in the context of how white society viewed respectability uh, with attire. And even though it wasn't in the context of Black power, but I would argue that an antecedent of the contemporary Black Power movement was when SNCC people started wearing blue jeans in the South and relating to the community in which they were working. Because wearing the suits and ties was really trying to show white people that we could be like them. And whereas when, when people were working in those rural areas with people who had, uh, uh, who, who had maybe one suit or one tie that and wearing blue jeans created a, a common reality for us that I would argue, although we didn't talk about it at the time like that, was an antecedent of of a black a black consciousness that became black power. From a communications perspective, which is where um my, my background is, I always looked at the dressing up in the you know the Sunday best um to go, you know, engage in acts of civil disobedience that resulted in extreme violence by the state. 
it was for white gays, right? White gays seeing that kind of brutality perpetrated against folks that looked respectable, right? As if any amount of brutality against anybody, regardless of how they're dressed, matters. I do think a little bit, though, that that it did help shock and awe, you know, uh, Americans who otherwise would have turned their head. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Yes. Uh, I mean, this is, I'm sorry, I'm going off, but you know, I was, uh, <laughs> I was a Girl Scout from the time I was a Brownie, you know, right up until I graduated from high school. And, you know, needless to say, all black uh, Brownie Scouts. And just thinking about respectability, uh, a big momentous event was going to happen there in Memphis. And that was that the white uh, Girl Scouts Association had invited our all black troop to have a sleepover with an all white troop. This was the first ever and what our scout leaders, I mean, we had to bring all of our clothes, you know, our panties, our night, you know, our pajamas, because if they weren't just pristine, they were going to buy, you know, new panties, new because, you know, we had to be uh, respectable so that these white girls and their white leaders would know we were worthy to have a sleepover with these white girls. So yeah, I just, I hadn't thought of that. In, <laughs> no, I years. read that in the book and I laughed about it because it reminded me of my granny who was always so insistent that there were no holes in our undergarments because what if you died and why? <laughs> Oh, the white doctors then saw the whole <laughs> undergarments, which as a kid, right? Like, I mean, it was a granny, so I took it very seriously. But then as an adult, I was like, I don't know that that's exactly what we'd be worried about in that moment. Um, collective struggle for collective liberation. Um, can you all talk about, um, and I'm interested in this, you know, from all three of you, the Black Power Movement as a global fight and the importance of multiracial organizing. And we, in my organization, we talk about Black-led multiracial organizing and intersectionality, what your experience with that work is or has been. Well, I, I can start a little bit just to, to, to frame the conversation that, um, you know, one thing that I think is so, so important and Zahara touched on when she was talking about how, how and, and the context of when she and Michael met, that Black Power was internationalist from the beginning, right? So, so the, the meeting, you know, that's a higher reference was about whether SNCC should, should put out a statement against the war in Vietnam, um, you know, which they both were advocating SNCC to do so. And the statement came out in January uh, 1966 and is available online. It's well, well worth reading. What you see both in the statement itself, but also if you go back to the meeting notes, is a really robust conversation, not just about the war in Vietnam, but about US imperialism and national liberation worldwide. Um, so, so you see, you know, uh, I mean, the chapter we talk about is called the monster we live in, right? Something that Zahara said about how do, we, how do we organize to show people about this monster that we live in? You know, they were talking about 
apartheid in South Africa. They were talking about the US uh, invasion of the Dominican Republic and connecting what was happening in all of those places to what was happening in Mississippi, right? To what was happening in Alabama and elsewhere around the country. And I think that spirit is, is you know, true to their lives all the way to the present. Uh, uh, and I think, uh, you know, I hope that they'll talk about this, but, um, you know, the book follows them traveling between, you know, Vietnam and Cambodia and Cuba and Southern Africa and Eastern Europe and Jordan and so many other parts of the world, right? And I think bringing an, that kind of spirit of Black power and engaging in conversations with struggling class people all over the world I think, you know, that was there from the, from the beginning, Black Power. Zahara, mm. Michael, your thoughts? Well, um, picking up on, on that, I mean, that um, there were so many antecedents. I mean, we tend to talk about Black Power as if it, you know, just started in the 60s and that we were, we were very influenced by any number of, uh, of, um, of international events or people looking internationally, clearly the post-Nation of Islam, Malcolm X, was but one who was uh, traveling uh, made a, uh, traveling overseas in, Af- in the Third World, uh, made us conscious of the UN as a political tool, not just as an institution of peace, that um, when we look at um, uh, the life of Paul Robeson, uh, we see the same kind of thing, that... Um, Many of us were were influenced by the writings of French Fanon mm-hmm. that uh, in the Algerian uh, context created an internationalist view of the colonizer and the colonized. And so that, uh, and clearly uh, uh, the uh, Sharpeville incident in uh, South Africa, the, um, uh, the awareness as we began more uh, engaged with liberation movements of uh, in Zimbabwe, uh, ZANU, ZAPU, ANC, PAC, all of those issues, I think, really um, were essential in, in how we began to define Black power. So, how are anything to add there? Well, and certainly I would agree, you know, and this has been one of the um, great things about, you know, doing this book with Mike and Dan is because, you know, when you are in a movement or the movements of our time uh, for 50, over 50 years, you know, you forget how your consciousness formed. You know, it's your consciousness now. So you you forget uh, all the things that help to create it as it is in your mind now. So this was one of the great things about um, the book and being a part of all the discussions and all that we had with Dan is to be reminded of all these things that happened because, you know, uh, clearly coming out of Memphis, Tennessee, uh, in a very, you know, parochial environment and then to uh, meet the people that I met who opened my eyes to so many things. And I have to give a lot of credit to Jim Foreman, uh, who was the executive secretary of SNCC, as well as teachers that I had, Stoughton Lynn, Howard Zinn. Uh, um, You know, it's just, 
so much coming at you so fast that you are uh, attempting to uh, synthesize and integrate into your own experiences. And you, you know, having grown up in apartheid, it was very easy for me to understand what the South African struggle was all about, the Palestinian struggle, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, but it was fast and furious, you know, integrating it, understanding it. Uh, and, you know, needless to say, I'm so grateful to have had the mentors and the experiences to shape my consciousness into a Black consciousness, which uh, then enabled me to, uh, you know, accept myself, my Black self, my kinky-haired self. I mean, you know, all of this is a part of it because when you've been raised to hate the fact that you're of African descent, that your skin is black, that your hair is kinky. I mean, you know, you got to get rid of all of this baggage that has been piled on you, you know. So it's not only political, it's very personal, Personal. you know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I say often, right, white supremacy is a disease and we're all infected, right? All of us. Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. You are listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We're in conversation with lifelong freedom fighters and organizers, Zahara Simmons and Michael Simmons, whose life work is lifted up in a new book by Dan Berger, who also joins us today. The book is called State on Freedom. And just like I thought I was going to run out of time, I've got like 30 more questions on here, but um, I've got five minutes left um, in my time with you. So I I think um, I want to start with you, Dan, because you titled the book. Um, but I'm going to ask this question uh, to each of you. What does stayed on freedom mean to you? And I've had that song in my head since this book got to my house. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. on constant rotation. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Some, someone told me when I gave it the title that that, that would happen. To... <laughs> uh, um, you know, I, I, I think uh, beyond a particular ideology, because I think the book and, and Zahara and Michael's Lives and the Black Power Movement is actually stretches across multiple ideologies. Um, uh, and I, what I wanted to show is a set of principles and a set of values that determine what it means or shape what it means to, to be involved in the struggle for the long haul. And that to me is state on freedom. Right? So that, that, that's why the books of follows you know these two people across a variety of different organizations um, pursuing you know some different strategies at different moments but always sort of reflecting on on this uh on this goal of how does this advance the the cause of human liberation how does this serve a cause of of universal emancipation and freedom uh, sorry, I was trying to to answer your question without using the word "state on freedom," but uh, <laughs> but but that that that's what it means to me, right? That that, that those set of values and principles um, that can really drive people to to fight for the long haul, and so that's why the the opening of the book talks about this as a love story, not just between these two lifelong friends uh, who shared a brief romance and who are co-parents, um, but but between those two people and and the world, right? Uh, between those two people and the struggles that they've been a part of. 
Yeah, and I'm, I'm bummed we didn't get to talk about the love piece more and, and how the work of freedom fighting for liberation of Black people is a labor of love, especially because that work so often right gets characterized as being full of hate and mm-hmm. anger as opposed to a deep love for our people. Michael, what does state on freedom mean to you? Well, it's almost, it means exactly what it says, really, state on freedom in the sense that one has to find ways to live, uh, pay rent and bills, et cetera, et cetera. But in that process, there's always an area uh, where one could, and I would argue should, be struggling to improve the quality of life of of, um, of marginalized people, of which, and I don't want to act like I don't consider myself part of that process or uh, part of that that reality. Um, so that state on freedom means that regardless of what you're doing, there's always something that you can do to make change in your environment, to improve the quality of life. It could be in your neighborhood. It could be in your school. It could be at your employment. It could be in so many venues so that you don't have to become, quote, a professional freedom fighter. You just can live your life and still engaged in improving the quality of life of others. And the queen gets the final word. The, <laughs> oh, my goodness. The virus, well, state on freedom, was it mean to you? Well, I tell you, it's, uh, it has meant and does mean that when I see injustice, when I see suffering, uh, my mind immediately starts wondering, well, wait a minute, what can we do to change this? I mean, I don't know. It's just, it always is there operating. This is wrong and we need to change it and we can change it. And I don't know. I just, it's there and it won't go away. It's always about we can make it better. It is it doesn't have to be like this. This can change and we can change it. Amazing words to end on. Thank you so much to the three of you for joining us. Y'all, you've been listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We have been in conversation with lifelong freedom fighters, Zahara Simmons and Michael Simmons. Their stories, their commitment to our people, their commitment to freedom and liberation, lifelong, is lifted up with a new book by Dan Berger, who also joined us for our conversation today. The book is called Stayed on Freedom. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Rask of the Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. 
our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.